You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Episode, honestly, I'm not really sure. I think 10 or so. We've been doing so many of these. I know we took a little break to give everybody a little time off during during the summertime, but really excited to be back here. We've got two great guests with us here. So we have uh, Hagen Walker, who is the, the founder and CEO of Glow. So there's Glow Cubes and Glow Pals. They serve extremely different markets. And so excited to dive into there. And that's got to make it pretty fun to, you know, kind of balance two different worlds. And then we have Rocky Brody over at Fredos. And she says she has a crystal ball and will tell us what's going to happen in the, the freight world. Uh, I'm just joking. We'd, we'd be paying her probably billions to get those answers. Anyways, before we jump into all this, just as we always do, everybody, if you want to throw into the chat where you're calling in from, as always, I'm calling in, actually, I shouldn't say from always, as usual, I'm calling in from Southern California. I think it was our last uh, operators episode, I was actually at our headquarters in Chicago. So I got to finally mix it up a little bit after COVID and being being at home the whole time, got to get out a little bit. So there we go. Some people from from Texas, Ohio, let's see where, where our Chicago people are in. And then before I finish the intro, Hagen and Rocky, where are both of you calling in from? Yeah, so I'm actually in Chicago, not at ShipBob, but maybe I should hop over. Yeah, you should head on over. What about you, Hagen? I'm in Starkville, Mississippi, home of Mississippi State University. So. Perfect. We was joking, obviously, that we should just chat about SEC, and I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Pac-10 or Pac-12-er, so it's been a dreary decade for us. Anyways, that's not what we're here to discuss, so... Uh, again, with with Hagen and, and Glow, he's got the Glow cubes, which are you know liquid activated light up drink cubes, which are of course fun for adults and and kids as well. And then he has his his Glow pals as well, which are light up sensory toys for children. Sells them directly to consumers, um, but also you can find them in retailers all over North America, like Macy's, Nordstrom, SeaWorld. I'd love to hear how you got into SeaWorld. And then I believe you sold over four million products, which is a very large number. And then Rocky's over at Fredos, which is you know one of our, our premier freight partners for all of us. I think freight and supply chain have just been top of mind outside of us wanting to get our products to the end consumers where you know we at ShipBob really come into play from the Fredos standpoint. We have to get our inventory to our fulfillment providers or to our house or to our, our own warehouses if we're fulfilling from there. So We'll jump into you know a bunch of our questions. Looking into the chat, let's see. We've got Sebastian in Toronto, China in India, um, another person in Vancouver. So as, as usual, we've got some people coming from overseas, and we got some people in um, in New York. So to start off, let, let's go with you, Hagen. This started off as like a, a class project. You were interning at, at Tesla, who's had quite the ride. Tell us a little bit, like h- how did this get started? Yeah, so this was born out of a classroom project at Mississippi State about uh, five years ago at this point, right around the same time that I was headed out to Tesla Motors to intern. A friend of mine had this idea. Uh, actually, one of her professors, she was in graphic design, gave them a project. And the idea was to draw someone's eye to a product or a brand. And they were each given something uh, to base this around. And so Kaylee was given a small teacup and she said, well, if the drink lit up, then people would look at it. And so I was studying electrical engineering at the time. She kind of asked me for some help and uh, ended up getting an A on that project. We got referred to the Entrepreneurship Center here at Mississippi State and um, kind of it, it was born out of there. And so about a year after we started, um, you know, we were starting manufacture products and getting them sold. And uh, a mom reached out and told us about this story where she had found our glow cubes in a drink at a restaurant somewhere and took one home and put it in the bathtub for her son who had autism. And it was the first time in months that he had taken a bath without crying. And so our team here kind of ran with that story and, and used that technology that we developed and patented to also create this kid's line of light-up sensory toys. And so we used the same technology behind both, but yes, vastly different markets. Uh, so that's been a fun a fun ride. We say kids and cocktails uh, internally. So Yeah, so sometimes they can go together as you 
juggle the, the craziness <laughs> of kids. So let's we'll come back to the cubes in a second, and in, in a bit I'd love to talk about you know from from a marketing and distribution standpoint with. But with, with Glow Pals, talk me through that. So, you know, I guess, how does the product help kids with autism? I'm assuming the market is, you know, more general for kids across the board. And so t- talk us through the thinking there. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was very exploratory for us. I'm 28 and don't have kids. And so this was a whole uh, interesting field to kind of land in. But particularly with kids uh, that have autism, if you can help redirect their senses to something else, it can really help calm them in, in stressful situations. Something like getting in the bath where they're feeling sensation of water all over, uh, it really helps. But we also see it used in, in a ton of different areas. Um, we've seen even optometrists use it for eye tracking with young kids. We see cause and effect because they're liquid activated. So you put them in water and, uh, you know, they turn on, you take them out, they turn off. And then they're just fine. You know, we, we, 95% of our, you know, customers just buy them because it's a fun toy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to buy some for, for my kids. I, I know I told you earlier, I'm a Glow Cubes customer. And so maybe we'll get some some presents for the kids as well. So you were interning at Tesla. How long were you there? Or was that just kind of a, a brief stop while you stumbled across Glow and have run with it since then? Well, it was kind of funny. My whole trajectory through college was to uh, join the automotive space. So that was kind of the end all be all. And I actually turned down an offer with Tesla to come make light up drink cubes, uh, which is is kind of funny. But while I was there, this was kind of all getting started. And so in the early days, Kaylee was still in Starkville. I would, I, we had enough money through winning the entrepreneurship week to buy a little 3D printer. So I would design and that was sitting in the closet at, at the house I was renting in California. So I would design and print little mock-ups after I got off work at Tesla, ship those back to Mississippi. She'd test them out with like a panel of judges, you know, from the university. And we just kept iterating until we got something that we felt was, you know, ready to go to market. That's great. So you were living what in LA at the time when you were interning for Tesla? I was actually uh, in San Fran in the, uh, well, Palo Alto area uh, where Tesla's headquarters are. Okay, nice. And then came back, came back to Mississippi. And so how long after did Glow Pals come? And then how'd you, how have you, you know, at, at least at the beginning, how'd you start to divide your time because, as you're promoting, you know, two very different companies? <laughs> Absolutely. So Glowpals, we started, I was employee number one as of January 2016. So that's kind of when we um, started working on products. And then uh, mid 2017 was when we got the idea uh, behind the Glowpals and we launched them at the beginning of 2018. And it's kind of crazy because, you know, COVID had a lot to do with this, but we were seeing a pretty, you know, healthy mix there. And then through COVID, you know, a lot of bars and restaurants, of course, got shut down or had to close. And so our distribution went to like 5% Glow Cubes and 95% Glow Pals. In fact, our um, Easter sales last year beat our Christmas sales from the year before. In the midst of a pandemic, everyone's at home with kids, probably trying to find a way to entertain them. And so, you know, we were very lucky that we had two brands in vastly different areas that we could kind of depend on. And then from a retail perspective, we spent a lot of time talking here about direct-to-consumer, which I know we'll circle back to. But from a retail perspective, how have you juggled the two there? Because I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that your retail partners are maybe the same for uh, at times, but you know, very different at times as well. So what's that look like? They, they typically are really different. And we've pursued a lot more on the strategic partnerships and uh, retailers for Glowpals. Uh, just... The Glowcube side is more wholesale direct to restaurants, um, so you don't find them as, as in as many stores. Um, you'll find them more in, in bars, restaurants, casinos, that kind of thing. Glowpals, you know, we've made a very deliberate trend to try to pursue very niche markets, a little more upscale markets for the consumers that we typically target that look for these kinds of toys. So you'll find them in like Nordstrom and Macy's and, um, you know, kind of places like that, Kohl's curated sections and, and stuff like that. So the Glow Pals are in about 1400 stores across the US and Canada. And then through our website, you know, we do have some distributors across the EU, but we've sold about 3 million Glow Pals to customers in about 36 countries. That's a lot. <laughs> it is. With Glow Cubes and the bars, are you are you looking for 
companies that own a lot of different restaurants and bars and trying to create like a larger relationship there or going to a bunch of smaller ones and hoping through word of mouth? How have you approached that? We typically go after the larger ones. So like the MGMs and the Caesar Palace mm-hmm. of the Worlds that buy. Um, it, it Sometimes it, it differs. So they're dishwasher safe. So they can be used. They can be washed just like dishes. But typically we see people use them more as a promotional item. Sometimes they'll even include them with the drink, but not in the drink so that you get that experience of your drink lighting up yourself when it gets to the table. So that's pretty cool. And then with Glow Pals, who's your first retail partner? How'd you go about that? Oh, that's a great question. I believe our first retail partner actually was Uncommon Goods. So Mm -hmm. they're like an online retail partner. Um, So really cool stuff. If you haven't checked them out, I'd encourage you to do so. But they were really the first um, that kind of got us up and going. And then from there, I think we picked up Macy's next and then Nordstrom and some of the other ones followed there. And we're in Barnes and Noble and a lot more Target and some uh, have some products in Ulta and things like that. But um, the other really cool thing that that happened this year, kind of in the midst of the pandemic, is we actually got a very strategic partnership with Sesame Street. So we make some light up versions of Sesame Street characters with more on the way in Q1 of 2022 so that's exciting as well that's awesome let's circle back to that in a sec but with like macy's you know as your first physical retail partner if you could give advice to you know brands today what was the number one thing or top couple things that they looked for to you know validate you guys as a company and as a brand and start start distributing your inventory there's a number of different facets there Uh, from a marketing side you you really have to have your brand together and they really want to see organic brands. They look for brands that have a story behind them. They want you to be yourself. That's really what a lot of these retailers are moving towards and and especially more in the curated space. So that was very important to them. Um, And and we go through great strides to try to do things like that. We, um, you know, promote our packaging team and show how we package all of our materials here in Starkville and that we're, you know, trying to keep people in a rural part of Mississippi. And so a lot of it has to do with the story. And then once you kind of get past that point, you've made a good relationship with the buyer, they issue POs, that's really where the fun starts of uh, trying to, to figure out how you ship according to their specs. Uh, so the first pointer there is, uh, I think they were the first customers that we started shipping goods on pallets uh, with. So uh, make sure that you have a dock to be able to ship things from. Uh, that was fun. We, we typically had to take boxes over to another, a friend's warehouse, wrap everything there, and then have trucks pick it up from there because we were too small for our own facility at the time. That's funny. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how just all these retailers have different different asks. And of course, you'll learn as you go. And then with Sesame Street, it's hard to think of a more iconic brand out there, especially for children. Did they approach you? You approached them? How'd this come to fruition? Yeah, they actually approached us at New York Toy Fair in 2019. And you would think, I mean, as big of a company as they are, that that would be a very monotonous corporation to have to deal with for, you know, trying to solidify a partnership. But they're awesome to work with. And uh, it's really cool. We're one of only a handful of companies that have the license for Julia, which is their newest Muppet, I guess. And um, she actually has autism. And so they heard the story of kind of how we started the Globe House and it, it kind of came full circle. So um, that helped us get into Barnes & Noble, Kohl's, as well as SeaWorld. So SeaWorld actually owns Sesame Place, but we're okay. also in some of the other places as well, like Bush Gardens and, of course, actual SeaWorld. So that's pretty cool. And then as you think of your retail partners, let's just say with like Globe House, because you know your volume is so high there, and you don't need to share specifics, but do you see a pretty big mix where, hey, you're in... 20 different retailers, but only two of them really move real volume. Is it pretty distributed? How do you how do you look at that? Well, I would say our distribution is kind of interesting as well, because going back to kind of the curated part of this, um, we rely heavily on a lot of smaller toy stores and things like that as well. And so it, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of seasonality to it. We see a mo- probably 70% of our Globals revenue happens at the end of Q3 and Q4 as people gear up for Christmas. But we've been very lucky with most of the SKUs kind of selling along the same rates. Um, We can kind of sell them in case packs that contain all of them. We've been very lucky that we haven't really had anything fall off there on that end or a color that people really don't like or something like that. 
That's good. And then what about with the Sesame characters? How many how many different Sesame character, characters do you guys have live today? Right now we have two. We have Elmo and Julia. So they just okay. launched about two months ago. And then we'll launch Big Bird, Abby Cadabby, and Cookie Monster in Q1 of next year. Okay. That's great. Abby Cadabby? Yeah. So she's a new one as well. Um, okay. uh, she, she's, she's not too old. But uh, yeah, she... She's a little magical character that has a little magic wand and stuff. So we're trying to plan something pretty cool for her. That's great. I need to I need to refresh on my, my Sesame yeah. character again. <laughs> and then let's get, you know, start moving into some of the manufacturing side. You manufacture overseas, domestically, combination of both. How do you approach that? So we manufacture the products overseas. We have three joint factories in China uh, and different provenances there. And then we ship everything back here and we actually fulfill all of the orders from right behind me. So we're actually located, we just renovated an old theater uh, for part of our e-commerce facility. So um, there's actually people back there working right now, but um, it's, it's pretty cool to, to be in an old theater and have a warehouse here. But so we do all of our design, all of our fulfillment, all of our QC um, right here in Starkville. And how has that been over the last couple of years from just the manufacturing side, lead time, costs? And I know there's a lot there, but then also as you strike these larger partnerships and they want to order in bulk and you're trying to get stuff over to them as soon as possible, how have you been able to navigate that? Oh, it's been fun. Uh, (laughs) It's been crazy. I mean, something recently that happened was uh, we actually got a deal with QVC and they wanted to ship items, you know, direct import from China. And uh, we just couldn't make it work because of the lead times. And so we actually had commissioned for, you know, that product to be made over there to ship directly to them. And then kind of at the tail end of manufacturing, all these lead times with shipping were going up. And so we had our U.S. team also make the same amount of goods and we ship from here to kind of offset that. So what we try to do is at least keep a certain amount of safety stock in the U.S. at all times. So if things like that happen, especially through COVID, we, we kind of learned some of this the hard way, you know, trying to find ways to mitigate that. So actually in the midst of COVID, we only had one factory over there. And the reason for bringing the other two on and kind of sharing blueprints across was having them in all different provinces. If one got shut down because of something, we could kind of migrate to the other and, and they would be ready to go. Something else we do to kind of expedite this is we ask all of our factories to kind of have raw materials for a certain amount of products on hand um, mm-hmm. so that they can start production immediately without having to do a whole lot of sourcing. That's a, a little bit of our combination of trying to mitigate some of that. Of course, even with all of that, it's still been tremendously hard and I, I joke all the time and Rocky can probably attest to this a little bit but it's uh it's funny that you can buy a three dollar product off of Amazon and you get end-to-end tracking and then you have a five hundred thousand dollar shipment coming from overseas and it might just appear at your door two day or two two months later and you have no idea you know where it was or or what that process looked like which is always so funny to me but one thing on that really quickly, I, I do tell people all the time that if, uh, you know, they had to push our, our freight container in the ocean, we'd know exactly where to find it. So it, of course, would light up. So <laughs> There you go. You just, just zoom out on Google yeah. or something like <laughs> that. Right. Right on Google Earth. And, and so I wanna, I've got some Fredo's questions in one sec. Uh, before we get there, so you have three manufacturers in China in different regions to sure. build in some type of redundancy. When, I guess, did that light bulb moment go off for you or where, where in the, the journey, you know, the glow journey, did you say, hey, we need to start building some redundancies on the manufacturing side? Or was that like a COVID? It, it was definitely during COVID. We've had a lot of those epiphanies. Like I said, I've never done any of this before, you know, electrical engineer over here trying to be a logistics manager. And so you kind of learn some of this as you go. Something else, like early on, you hear a lot of... Uh, a lot of things about um, protecting IP uh, in different countries and things like that. And so actually, we started with two factories. We had one make the plastics, one make the electronics, and we'd ship them to the U.S. and assemble them here just to try to protect some of that until we trusted one of the factories over there enough to do that. It's kind of funny. I, I don't want to overstep this conversation too much, but you know, one thing that's been kind of difficult lately is tariffs and uh it's kind of counterintuitive for us because we're bringing things here trying to create more jobs in the u.s where we can Mm -hmm. with packaging and fulfillment but what ends up happening with (laughs) the tariffs 
is if you import children's toys that are complete, there's actually not a tariff. And so it'd be a lot cheaper for us to get everything manufactured in China, import everything, you know, as a finished good. And so that's been tough because it's very counterintuitive and, you know, takes jobs away from U.S. people. So, yeah, there's a lot of examples like that, which when you zoom out, don't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, Rocky, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but we can, Hagen, if you can explain to us how you came across Fredos and how you use Fredos, because I know a lot of people are not necessarily over familiar with, you know, Fredos as a product. And we love Fredos, by the way. Um, it's very interesting how, I would say, archaic the FTL and LCL shipping world is. Like I said earlier with the tracking, it's it's kind of like pulling teeth in a way. And uh, the old way of doing things is you'd reach out to somebody, you'd set up an account with their certain, you know, with a freight forward, or you'd ask, uh, you know, you'd send over a packing list and tell them where to and, you know, where from shipments are needing to go. And then you'd wait, you know, between three and seven days typically to get a quote back. And that would just be one quote. So you'd have to do this with like five or six people to get you know, some comparable results. And uh, Fredos has just kind of like turned this into Expedia for uh, for shipping. So it's awesome. You log in, you uh, put in the, the criteria of what you're shipping, and uh, it instantly loads cost quotes for you, and, and you can book right there on the spot. And so for us, I mean, you know, I'm wearing 10 different hats a day. And if I can mitigate just that time savings alone, and almost always the prices are better than what I would get reaching out one-to-one -one, uh, to freight forwarders anyway, that makes a huge difference. So we use Fredos pretty exclusively for all of our ocean freight. That's great. And Rocky, I don't know if you all use that slogan yourself, or maybe you can steal from Hagen today, but there we go. The Expedia of freight. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, so, so Rocky, if you could expand on that a little bit. So Fredos comes in, you provide them a bunch of different quotes. Where does your, where do your services begin and where do they end? Yeah, so it's actually really interesting because conceptually we and, and it's great to hear it from Hagen, who you know is coming at it not from you said that you you're an electrical engineer, you know, turned logistics manager. I think many of our businesses are like that, where they're not, or many of our customers, where they're not coming from a logistics technology background or a supply chain management background. They're starting a brand, just like many of the people who I see are probably on this call today, and so you're not coming at it from you know, certain expectations for what happens in the world of freight, you're looking at, okay, how do I book travel? And how do I book an Uber? And how do I book a vacation place? And so I want my freight to work just like that. And, and they kind of expect that of the world of freight. Whereas I think people who have been in the freight industry for a long time are still, you know, we see many people who just love the relationship that they have with, with an individual freight forwarder. He's a guy in my block. Freight forwarding is traditionally a very localized industry. And so you'll see lots of you know people searching on Google, let's say, for freight forwarder in Florida, and they want that person on their block. So kind of going back to it, I think that where we come in is, is very much like a marketplace model. And that's really important that we, we talk to our customers all the time about the fact that we are not trying to be a freight forwarder. We're not trying to actually provide that service where we book and execute people's shipments, but we're trying to break open the transparency of the market. We're trying to say to them, here are all, to anybody, here are all of your choices. Here's all the ways that you can compare quotes and reviews like you would any other product that you would buy or service that you would buy on a marketplace. And we expect the same of freight. So when you're ready to ship from Shanghai in China to Chicago, where I am today, I want to be able to go online, search for what I'm looking for. So that would include the dimensions that I'm looking for and the load, you know, the load and the origin and the destination and when I think my goods are going to be ready. And then I want to see just like any other marketplace, the rates coming from lots of different logistics providers. And then I can look at, you know, the reviews and what other customers' experiences have been. And then they are going to handle that actual shipment. So we are not actually the ones who are executing that shipment. What we do provide, and this is, I think, the one of the distinguishing factors between a marketplace and why people today enjoy uh, purchasing through marketplaces as opposed to individually with a freight forwarder, is that we provide that extra layer of trust. So one of the things that we have many, many meetings about is our um, standard operating procedure and all of our legal documentation. And this is what holds freight forwarders on our marketplace very honest in terms of 
standardizing the service levels that they can provide to our customers so that anybody can do what Hagen's talking about, go and search for a quote, and you can get a quote from any number of freight forwarders and move between freight forwarders because you know that you have kind of that stamp of approval that they're going to be abiding by Freightos. And, and if not, then we have a disputes process. So you can go and dispute your shipment and say, no, this is not okay. And you know that you have legal jurisdiction over that. So you're not just kind of in it by yourself. You're in it with our backing, but we still are connecting you to the person who's going to be executing that actual shipment and moving your goods from one place to another. And we believe that the importance of that is actually in kind of building your relationship with a freight forwarder. Because if your goods don't arrive, you know, in any one of these marketplaces, if your if your Uber doesn't show up and you're at the airport waiting for your Uber, you want to talk to your driver, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to be calling Uber customer service and saying, "Hey, where's my driver? I'm at the airport," and then having them contact. You want to make sure that that platform is enabling you to connect to the person to get the quickest answers that you can. So, in many ways, I think that one of the interesting things for people, you know, on this call is to try to think about freight in the context of how you relate to other aspects of your business. Because many businesses that are building brands, and I think Hagen spoke to this a lot, like freight is is one of the hats. It's definitely not going to occupy all of your day. And it shouldn't occupy all of your day. You should do it just in the same way that you're doing everything else. So you, you touched on performance, because that was definitely a question of mine. You talked about ocean freight. So with Freightos, you're able to connect, you know, with your freight forwarder and they're helping you, let's say, ship something from Shenzhen to the port of Long Beach, or are they helping you facilitate the entire journey where they're actually going to take it all the way to, you know, Hagen's warehouse, right. theater so- turned warehouse in Mississippi? <laughs> So that really depends on what you're searching for, right? Many of our customers are looking for door-to-door straight from the factory in wherever the grids are being produced all the way to the fulfillment center. Hagen, I don't know. Do you do door-to-door quotes? I didn't look at your account. We, we typically the- do do door-to-door or FOB, meaning that uh, the factory takes it to the port and then we do port-to-door. So Right. But many, you know, and and others will send it, let's say, directly to their fulfillment center. So a lot of our customers who use ShipBob will send the goods straight from the factory to ShipBob and then ShipBob will, you know, work with the last mile. Some of them will send it. Some of our larger shippers will send it just to the port and then they'll have their truckers bring it inland. So there really are multiple options there. So I was talking to Aiden over on your team at Freightos a couple of weeks ago, just on pricing and, and timing and not the Fredos pricing, but just what you guys are seeing mm-hmm. generally. What are some of the trends you've seen? Let's primarily start with China or Asia to the West Coast and East Coast. I'm not sure if you have any of those numbers in front of you. I just know that from a multiple perspective, they've been off like the charts. 6X, yeah. I actually just ran a search before we got on this call from Shanghai to Chicago if I wanted to send a container, and it was over 25K. That same container, maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago, would have maybe been $4,000. So that's just to give you an example of the type of pricing that we're talking about. It's literally insane. It has only gone in one direction. So like trends have not, you know, usually you'll see a chart with peaks and lows, and they're basically only been peaks. We do what we see seasonality in terms of peak season. Usually we'll, you know, in a typical year pre-COVID, so we would have some differences in pricing around Chinese New Year, you would see that demand kind of dips down and, and you know, the factories are closing in China. And then post Chinese New Year, the prices are typically a little bit lower, and then they'll start to climb towards peak season as people are ordering goods for Black Friday and for the holidays, and trying to get those goods out in let's say July, August, and then they'll kind of climb and then they'll dip again. Right now, what we've basically seen is a peak season that started in 2020 in like March or April and has only gone up since then. So it's it's just been crazy. And there's a number of reasons that kind of contributed to this at the same time. So I can talk about some of those. And it's interesting. I'll start with even before talking about the reasons. I work in freight and you know, Hagen, you also now know about freight, but you definitely probably don't dream about freight at night. Um, many of and with the, and with the prices as they are now, I do. Don't worry. Yeah, maybe you do. I don't know if you also talk in freight puns all the time, but that's another <laughs> thing that you know we do all the time. 
But now it used to be that people would look at me and, and say like, what, wait, what is freight? You know, or what does a container look like? I don't even think I knew what containers looked like before I started working at Freightos three and a half years ago. Now I see them everywhere I go. I'm not sure if containers are just on the road much more in the past three and a half years or if I'm just more aware. But right now, because of what's going on in the industry and the skyrocketing, you know, freight, freight pricing, it's all over. The Wall Street Journal just had an article two days ago about how toy prices have are going to skyrocket because in the end of the day, any brands like like Glow are going to have to foot that money somewhere. So we run a bunch of surveys showing that different kind of approaches to how do you sell a product for $3 and what happens when the cost of bringing that product in goes from a container that used to cost $4,000 to a container that now costs $25,000. And we actually ran one survey, I'll bring you some information um, in January, and then we ran it again in June, asking the same question of, you know, what supply chain difficulties did SMB exper- SMBs experience during the pandemic? And how did they kind of adapt? And so in January, 34% said that they increased prices as a result of the end product. And when we ran the same survey in June, it moved up from 34% to 46% that said that they have increased pricing. So I think people, you know, when they were trying to absorb that price in the beginning, they've now realized that they just can't absorb that price anymore. It's going to get to the end consumer in the end of the day. And have you seen things plateau a little bit or have you seen them continue to rise? Because I know the, the go-to answer, at least a month ago on containers was like 20K. Obviously, it depends on yeah. the final destination. So I, I, I don't think that we've, I don't think that we're expecting it to go down at any point in the next, definitely. So here's where we get to the point where like, I don't have a crystal ball, right? Yeah. Um, but we do know that there are certain reasons that have caused this, right? And so in order for it to go down, those reasons would have to go away. And so those reasons are basically, we saw that at the beginning of COVID, we were actually the carriers were expecting a slow down in demand originally. And so they were limiting their capacity and trying to boost those prices. And then we quickly saw, and you know, we saw things slowing down in factories in China and stuff like that. We thought that freight was actually going to kind of disappear in terms of demand or, or at least decline. What actually ended up happening in you know March and April was that as soon as those factories opened up and as soon as it the pandemic started to hit the rest of the world, the preference of of the consumer really shifted from services to buying many more products. I don't know if you have you seen this, Hagen, in your sales kind of just like going through the roof? Yeah, it's it's been weird, especially for the Globe Pals. And so yeah, we were out of stock uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic because kind of the same thing, you know, we were like prepping for the worst that sales weren't going to happen. And then everyone's at home with kids, I guess. And uh, we saw the opposite, which, you know, we, we were lucky in that regard. But it's just weird because, um, yeah, we didn't expect what we saw. Yeah. So then you have this kind of like increase in demand from all of these e-commerce companies that are, you know, just selling more and more and more you still have fewer ships and containers and and you can't just like print ships and containers. Those take a really long time to build and secure and produce. And so that's not going to happen anytime soon. We also, you know, saw it, it exacerbated by certain things like the Suez Canal blockage during this year and different things like flooding in Europe and fires in Canada. And so lots of different natural things that because there was such heightened demand and constraint on supply. So anytime you have a blockage of the Suez Canal of, you know, even under a week, it's just like, we can't handle that backlog. And so we haven't really seen any, any sort of room to breathe in terms of this dynamic between supply and demand. And that's why the prices are just staying so high. The amount of capacity right now on carriers is like close to hundred percent, which is just like unprecedented. And it's really the biggest struggle that we see from all of our customer conversations is just getting your goods on a ship, even though they're so expensive, but I just want to be able to move them so that I can sell them at my warehouse and I can have them for Black Friday this year um, and Christmas. Yeah. And I mean, I'm seeing that here as well. I mean, we see it, of course, at ShipHub because we're often on the receiving side from what you all are facilitating on the freight over. And then I live in Southern California. So I'm about an hour south of the Long Beach and LA ports. And I grew up here and I've mentioned it on this, you know, on operators before, but, you know, I was 
going to the beach every day that I could as a kid. And obviously I wasn't looking for it, but we never saw container ships in the ocean where I am. And now it's like, I remember the first time going to the beach during COVID, we're driving down. My son's like, are those warships? And I'm like, huh? And I look out there and it's just the seas littered in container ships. It's almost like yeah. a backlog to even wow. get to the port. It's crazy. I've never seen this before. And I'm like, okay, like right. that will dissipate, you know, over the next couple of months. And it's, it's like worse now than ever. And so again, I know the LA and Long Beach port is a major hub yes. for the world, but that's just one of many, many ports just to like mm-hmm. see it firsthand. A colleague of mine, she was flying back from LA to Chicago a couple of weeks ago and she took a picture, you know, as the plane circled over and I should, I should share this somewhere. It was pretty fascinating where it's just, and she's like, the picture doesn't even do it justice, but it was just the ocean was just covered in ships. It's crazy. And so crazy. And we even saw some customers actually diverting their goods. So shipping to East coast and then trucking it over or shipping to Canada and trying to get it down. Like people were just trying to get in whatever way they could. Yeah. I think Peloton's trying to like fly things off of ships and, get crazy so 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 hagen how's it been for you all like how have you navigated that and then have you looked at all into manufacturing in the u.s or does that just not make sense right now yeah it's uh it, it's kind of sad but uh the cheapest quote that and we and we check per- periodically but the cheapest quote last time i got was 500 percent higher uh than the cost that it is to produce in china and so i mean even with uh with containers being twenty four thousand dollars, that's fraction of what it would cost to actually manufacture our products over here. You know, we would love to bring uh, manufacturing stateside if there were a way to make it make sense, but we're just producing such a low cost, you know, item, the mm-hmm. little light up cubes and you get four for $10 that it, it just doesn't work really for our model. And then from, you know, what Rocky's seeing and, you know, the numbers, of course, she pulled from China to Chicago, how, what, what's the impact that you all have seen? from both a cost perspective, but also a time perspective to get things over here. It's crazy. Um, we're, we're not uh, doing things as crazy as Peloton, but uh, we do airship quite a bit more than we did. So, you know, this is something for people that are starting businesses. And, and this is how we had to start before really understanding, you know, ocean freight at all. But talking to your local reps, your UPS, your DHL, your FedEx reps, and trying to get some just preliminary accounts and rates set up to be able to get goods back and forth. And of course, as we've grown, those have gotten better. And, uh, you know, it, it broaches a whole nother subject of trying to figure out, you know, getting TSA import clearances and all that kind of stuff for different goods. But it, it's just been a mess. And every day is a little bit different. You find things that previously, I mean, obviously, we have all of our safety certifications for 36 plus countries, but you find things where, because customs is so backlogged to get something that's flagged and you have to submit paperwork and, you know, X, Y, and Z. So we're seeing constraints not only in costs or increased costs, we're also seeing just this whole chain kind of have different kinks in it that we haven't seen before. So that uh, has made things a lot more interesting. So I want to jump into some of the marketing stuff. We can end like on a high note and a fun note. We do have two questions from the audience. So the first one is for you, Rocky. I might botch some of it. And so if you need to answer the question differently, go for it. But Anthony's asking, with Fredos, do you expect importers and exporters to conduct multiple what-if scenarios to get the shipping intelligent or scenarios per deal? How are you all figuring that out? And then his final question was, what is the average number of scenarios does Fredos expect per deal from the client? Or maybe that's how you guys are. Maybe maybe is Anthony, you think, asking about like how many searches someone would run before they decide on um, which quote to to book? Maybe that. Yeah. So again, you you can. Yeah. So I mean, that really depends on which stage. Oh, great. This is a great way of chatting with someone, even when their video is not on. Thank you for answering, Anthony. You learn new things with these platforms every day, you know. Um, so, so I think that's that really depends on what stage the um, customer is at. So we'll find people who are really in the research phase and they're just trying to price out. I see some questions that are popping up here from people who don't even have a product yet launched, and they might come onto Fredos and say, "Well, if I, you know, I'm pricing this product at X, how much is it going to cost me, and how many units can I fit into?" a certain shipment and and would I ship by air or by ocean and trying to price it out. And so we'll see many searches that somebody will conduct before actually choosing when to book. We'll see others that, you know, depending, depending how experienced they are and how much they know 
after running the first search if it's if this is pricing that they're ready for. One thing that, you know, that whereas others will run multiple searches. One thing that I find interesting is that Freydos is very different than buying something or shipping in general is very different than buying something on Amazon. And so, you know, you might search for a pair of shoes every day. You can buy a new pair of shoes every single day if you want another pair of shoes and you just love shoes. But shipping comes down to the fact that you actually have to move your goods at a certain time from point A to point B. And so I'm not going to be shipping today and tomorrow and the next day unless I have to move those goods. And so there's not always that one-to-one relationship between, oh, if I search more often, therefore I'll buy more often. No, I'm going to buy when I need to buy and when I need to move those goods. And I think that the you know exploration stage very much depends on the level of, of experience of the buyer, what they're looking for, how much those, that pricing, that specific pricing is changing. You know, so if if you're in a volatile market, it will be slightly different. Whereas if pricing hasn't changed in a while, then you'll just book. But we've we've really seen it run the gamut. We've we see people who who search for as long as like three to six months before ever booking, and people who search and book on the first day that they sign up. And then to take a similar question to you, Hagen, as an actual user and customer of the platform, and you have, you know, years of experience now, even if supply chain's not, you know, your your background, how do you approach it? Are you running multiple scenarios where you're saying, I need to move this from, you know, China to Mississippi, what's the cost door to door? What's the cost from door to port? And then from port to door, like how, how do you approach it? I would say now we do run different scenarios. Uh, previously, I kind of knew that, you know, Ningbo to, you know, from that port to our door here in Starkville was X. And I, I don't remember, probably somewhere in the $4,000 range. And now it's like probably 12. But, you know, so now what we'll do, because um, there's a lot of in- intermodal transport options in China, is, you know, I'll ask our factory and they're right down the road from one of the factories right down the road from the Ningbo port. And, uh, you know, they have, you know, real-time communication basically to say what's port congestion like. And if it's bad, we'll, you know, we'll ship things uh, by truck three or four hours to Shenzhen or or somewhere, Dongguan, somewhere else, and uh, try to ship it out of a different port there on the origin side. We typically haven't, you know, had to do that up until COVID, but um, that is something, you know, I would say that if you do have suppliers over there and you have a good relationship with them, that's always an option. And and they can, of course, just bill you as part of that when uh, when you get invoice for the goods. So I would run several different scenarios with pricing the way it is now. And with that example, I love that example. Have you found both when you're looking at these scenarios, are you more concerned on, all right, instead of 12K, it's going to cost me 9K? Are you saying, oh, instead of three months, there's a backlog and or not a backlog and I can get it here in a month and a half? What What is the transparency you're getting there, both in cost and time? And, and how are you juggling those? I would say that we're pretty weighted heavily on, on cost. So typically what we do, which is kind of, you know, maybe counterintuitive, I try to get the cost as low as, you know, pre-pandemic times as I can. And then what we'll also do, our, our factories are very good with this. And now that we have some really good air shipment rates in, I might do something where we'll sit down and we'll figure this out through a spreadsheet or through our inventory software. We'll say, well, our run rate is X. You know, we need 20% of this delivered by Y. And I'm going to ship that by air. It needs to be here in a month. It's not going to make it with sea shipping times right now. We just know it's not. So we're going to ship that by air. And then the other 80% will ship through the cheapest port that I can find. And it'll probably be here in two and a half months instead of the normal 40 days or something. So okay. that's kind of, you know, there's a, there's some math on the back end to try to figure out that, but you know, you're doing the best you can to try to keep your margins where they need to be without having to raise prices for your customers. And from a time perspective, are you seeing like a 50 to hundred percent increase? What, what's, what are you seeing firsthand? Yeah, I booked uh, something 24 days ago and it will leave port tomorrow. It will leave for it tomorrow. So at least 100% increase on delivery times, if not more. Wow. And did you have to modify the port origin or no? On that one, uh, the prices were very comparable. And so, um, you know, I I didn't want to add complexity on the front end if it really wasn't going to change anything. So how are you planning for 
again, you've got two very different product lines and you sell direct to consumer and you sell B2B. How are you preparing for the holiday season and <laughs> from lead time to cash flow? I'm sure it's a really simple answer. Well, no, it, it's really not a simple answer. I, I know. I'm joking. And it's funny. I always talk to people about this and I, I, you know, as you're starting a business, you always want to sound good, but at the same time, I think it's it's pretty uh, important to be like brutally honest. Cash flow is a huge concern, and and especially when you have physical products. And so, for us, you know, things on revenue are looking great this year. We're up, you know, over double from this point last year. However, as we onboard all of these new clients, SeaWorld and Barnes and Noble, all these places want like net ninety terms. And then, you know, even if you have terms with your manufacturers. Those probably are due way before now with these COVID extended uh, shipping times, way before you actually get the product. So you're paying on one end and then you're you're basically becoming the bank of glow for half a million dollars or something until you get it on the other end. And to compound that even more, you know, historically, banks don't want to give out lines of credit unless you have AR to back that up. So accounts receivable to, to you know, kind of. Uh, act as as a you know a, a way of repayment if something terrible happens but as you're prepping someone like us for christmas those are future orders that we can guarantee we're going to get based on what we did last year and the year before but we might not necessarily have the ar right now to back it up so it's a very very interesting scenario of literally trying to put the pedal to the metal with just enough uh cushion in there to make sure that uh everything you know stays on course if that makes yeah. sense it's just so many businesses you know from the outside looking in it's like oh, i'm sure this is a smooth ship and then it's, you know, <laughs> it's like the, the duck analogy underneath the water they're just kicking like crazy just <laughs> on that line do you use a traditional bank do you use any of the creative new like e-commerce lending solutions out there to help cash flow it how do you approach or are you guys trying to do it so you can float the bill yourself so like you said the bank wow. will out yeah historically um we've been very lucky we've been profitable since we started the company in 2016 um and only grown that we did take out a lot of credit this year just because every year since we've had the glow pals we've way sold out before we even get close to christmas and so some of that is just to procure inventory because we know we're going to sell through it and um seems like every year we double sales online so trying to do what we can. I We started this as a student. I've never really had any debt or anything before. And, um, you know, that's a scary realm to get into, I think, sometimes for a lot of people. But the other side of that is you kind of got to spend money to make money, right? And so as long as your books are looking healthy and you're not using, uh, you know, your credit line to like pay salaries and stuff, then I, I think it's probably okay to do that. Yeah. It's always such a fine balance. And if you don't mind sharing, what's the what's the revenue split between D to C versus retail? Like, how do you prioritize the two channels? Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, as we've grown, we've we've outgrown some tools that we liked. Uh, for example, we used to be on Squarespace, and we love Squarespace. It's very simple. We have a in house design team that can pop some stuff up. We had to move over to Shopify to have something that would integrate with a more robust uh, inventory solution that we have now. And um, that created all kinds of messes on the back end uh, because everything in Shopify is plugin based, you know, and so you're re relying on all these third parties to get a bunch of stuff done. We typically see about a 60-40 split, though, of B2B to B2C. So 60% B2B. And as supply chain concerns build up, if you had to pick one over the other from an inventory perspective, you know, are, are you always saying, hey, we need to feed the direct, we need to feed B2C or, hey, we've got these agreements with our B2B partners, like they've got to be fed first. How do you, how do you juggle that? I got to watch who's on this call, but uh, yeah, you can also, <laughs> you, uh, it, so. I would, yeah, I would say, you know, unless it's an order that's already been secured, which we typically try to get some of those way ahead of time for bigger clients. But I would always say B2C. You're in direct line of, of the sales process. You have mm -hmm. usually way higher margins on that. You get to control the whole user experience on that side of things. So I think that's really important. The other side of that, though, is having the clout. You know, like Globals doesn't have the clout that Nordstrom does, right? And so 
maybe there's a little bit of a hybrid that you, you know, if you really had to, you know, trim things down, say you're going to keep these, you know, three or four keys and then try to do some B2C stuff to keep the margins up. Well, I love what you're building. I could ask questions for days. We're almost at the top of the hour. So I think I've got two questions left in me. So I've got one more for you, Hagen. And then I've got a question for both of you, how we end uh, all these all these episodes. So my last one, Hagen, whether it be, you know, either of the brands, is there any fun marketing initiatives that you guys have done either early on or lately that, you know, really you think helped kickstart the brand and were just a lot of fun to execute? Oh, yeah. So when we first started, something that really kind of let Glowcube side take off. We um, did a collaboration with a guy as an influencer called the Tipsy Bartender. Uh, he makes drink videos on Facebook and YouTube and has, I don't know, 20 million plus followers or something. Anyway, he did a video on uh, on Glowcubes that got about 9 million views. And so we went from two employees to, uh, you know, bringing my family in and, and friends, uh, printing labels and, and putting, you know, sitting on the floor and fulfilling packages. So we probably could have definitely used uh, Ship Bob's help for that back in the day. I love stories like that. And it's just crazy the channels that there are today, like a single TikTok video, just like, you know, what Good Morning America might do for somebody. It can then maybe yeah. have a larger impact and, and also be more evergreen. And just you know, drive drive more sales than than you could fulfill in you know maybe a month. Uh, I love stories like that. Yeah. So my, my last question, Rocky, we'll start with you, and then Hagen, you can bring us home. It doesn't have to be just freight focused, but it costs anything. You know, R- Rocky, what's your number one tip for ecom entrepreneurs today? I think the number one tip is to kind of break out of all of those assumptions that you've had that things are just going to be planned. If we've learned anything over the past year and a half, it's that things are constantly going to change and to try to both budget in for those, you know, different unexpected surprises, but also to try to take advantage of opportunities. If I think about what we did back at in Fredos in um, March, before we realized that it was even going to be a pandemic that was going to hit our families and us ourselves, we saw it on the freight side of things as things were closing down in China. And we sat in a room as a marketing team and we said, hey, like people are going to end up working from home. We better get on webinars. And then slowly we see how marketing teams, you know, shifted to that. And I think that that's just an example from, you know, my own life. But I, but, you know, as Hagen mentioned, in terms of sales, look for those opportunities as things continue to change, because I think that patterns and buying patterns and selling patterns are out there and SMBs are are really finding ways to capitalize on that and being agile in ways that bigger businesses cannot be. Yeah, I like that. Definitely be agile, even as you get bigger. So, so Hagen, what would you tell yourself a couple of years ago? I think uh, the two things I would say is always look for the unconventional route. Because uh, you might find a path to somewhere that you didn't know, so always be open to like customer feedback and stuff, which started the Globe House. And then I would also say just be completely transparent. I think that customers really appreciate that, and I think it it does a lot uh, to speak to you and and your company culture. So those are my my two pointers. I like that. I think company culture is something as I work longer. I'll say instead of saying getting older. <laughs> is just you just really understand the importance and I, I love the unconventional path you're gonna have to call your old friends at tesla and tell elon you want to do space freight um, <laughs> maybe get things over it might back. be cheaper it's, it might be cheaper soon <laughs> who knows well hagen rocky really appreciate you taking the time to join us today of course everybody in the audience i know your time is extremely valuable i i learned a lot I, I just you know love hearing directly from entrepreneurs like you hagen and then the freight space is you know, the, the importance of supply chain had such a massive magnifying glass on it over the last year and a half. And it's really what runs e-commerce at the end of the day. So really appreciate you jumping Rocky and, and Fredos for joining us today. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back again shortly. And yes, have a great day.